Welcome to Poems for Company. I'm your host, Brian Dillon. What led you to make personal life-altering choices? Do you believe a sky god or some other cosmic force oversees your personal choices? Has your life unfolded due to unplanned incidents? What role has randomness played in your important life choices? For example, my adult daughter knows she exists because her mother smoked. When indoor smoking in public places was banned, I frequently saw the woman who became my first wife standing outside the building where I worked smoking. Our initial conversations eventually led to marriage and the birth of our daughter. That was a few lifetimes ago. And certainly an event of serendipity. Many people, even if they are content with their current life, imagine what might be different had they moved to Santa Fe rather than Seattle, or if they quit a frustrating job rather than remain dissatisfied for too long only for the sake of the paycheck. Today's episode includes three contemporary poets who reflect on personal choices that prompt us to wonder about our unlived lives, those fantasies about how it all could have been different. Unlived lives is today's theme. Let's start in a somewhat comic mode with Tony Hoagland's poem, Happy and Free. Hoagland's speaker reflects on a past choice that felt so right, so correct at the time, but that soon afterwards embarrassed him. Ostensibly, it's about a tattoo, but there's more going on in this poem than just discussion of a tattoo. This is Tony Hoagland's Happy and Free. I should not have gotten the tattoo that says, May all beings be happy and free, on my left arm, running from the inside of my elbow to the wrist in 20-point Verdana sans serif type. My serotonin level that day was so elevated that it deceived me into an optimistic feeling that I was finally ready to be pure. I've been happy in that way before, and you would think I would have learned by now that I inevitably return to Earth like a leaky, gradually deflating helium balloon. Now I see that my great tattoo might better have been a customized sweatshirt purchased online for $20 that said, Short Attention Span, or University of Repetitive Emotion. How quickly things pass. How long mistakes last. How unrealistic I am when left to my own devices. When I rolled up my shirt sleeve at the tattoo emporium to have that sentence stenciled into my pale flesh, I was getting into a relationship I could not possibly sustain. May all beings be happy and free. What a fitting punishment for the hubris of my passing and unstable self-esteem. And yet, 
It is my life, mine to squander as I will. That is a kind of freedom, I suppose, and I have a story which is still unfinished. That makes me kind of happy, too. That's Tony Hoagland's poem, Happy and Free. It's an eight-stanza poem, the last a mere one line, and for six of these eight stanzas, the speaker voices his regret over not just the tattoo, but his inability to learn from his experiences. His high serotonin level deceived him into feeling ridiculously optimistic the day he stepped into the tattoo emporium. He says, I've been happy in that way before, and you would think I would have learned by now that I inevitably return to Earth like a leaky, gradually deflating helium balloon. In hindsight, the direction where many of us see the clearest, he offers first a universal truth, how long mistakes last, and then a more personal one, how unrealistic I am when left to my own devices. Why were his serotonin levels so high the day he got the tattoo that said, May all beings be happy and free? I was getting into a relationship I could not possibly sustain. Well, we get it. The fantasy of the life that at one time we thought we were headed. And yet, these two words open stanza seven. The exuberant idealistic tattoo may be just one in a parade of dumb choices, but the speaker tries to land on some little patch of consolation. And yet, it is my life, mine to squander as I will. That is a kind of freedom, I suppose, and I have a story which is still unfinished. That makes me kind of happy, too. By a fortunate coincidence, our second poem also responds to tattoos. But again, the poem is about so much more than tattoos. Ellen Bass's poem, Indigo. The speaker, perhaps autobiographical, a woman nearly 70, encounters a much younger tattooed man pushing a baby in a stroller as he runs and thoughts of her own child, and especially her own child's father, burst forth. This is Ellen Bass's poem, Indigo. As I'm walking on West Cliff Drive, a man runs toward me pushing one of those jogging strollers with shock absorbers so the baby can keep sleeping, which this baby is. I can just get a glimpse of its almost translucent eyelids. The father is young, a jungle of indigo and carnelian tattooed from knuckle to jaw, leafy vines and blossoms, saints and symbols. Thick wooden plugs pierce his lobes, and his sunglasses testify to the radiance haloed around him. I'm so jealous as I often am, 
It's a kind of obsession. I want him to have been my child's father. I want to have married a man who wanted to be in a body, who wanted to live in it so much that he marked it up like a book, underlining, highlighting, writing in the margins, I was here. Not like my dead ex-husband, who was always fighting against the flesh, who sat for hours on his zafu, chanting Aum, and then went out and broke his hand punching the car. I imagine when this galloping man gets home, he's going to want to have sex with his wife, who slept in late, and then he'll eat barbecued ribs and let the baby teeth on a bone while he drinks a dark beer. I can't stop wishing my daughter had had a father like that. I can't stop wishing I'd had that life. Oh, I know, it's a miracle to have a life, any life at all. It took eight years for my parents to conceive me. First there was the war, and then just waiting. And my mother's bones so narrow, she had to be slit and I airlifted. That anyone is born, each precarious success from sperm and egg to zygote, embryo, infant, is a wonder. And here I am, alive, almost seventy years, and nothing has killed me. Not the car I totaled running a stop sign, or the spiracat that screwed into my blood. Not the tree that fell in the forest exactly where I was standing, my best friend shoving me backward, so I fell on my ass as it crashed. I'm alive, and I gave birth to a child. So she didn't get a father who'd sling her onto his shoulder, and so much else she didn't get. I've cried most of my life over that. And now there's everything that we can't talk about. We love, but cannot take too much of each other. Yet she is the one who, when I asked her to kill me if I no longer had my mind, we were on our way into Ross, shopping for dresses. That's something she likes, and they all look adorable on her. She's the only one who didn't hesitate or refuse or waver or flinch. As we strode across the parking lot, she said, Okay, but when's the cutoff? That's what I need to know. That's Ellen Bass's poem, Indigo. Thoughts of a passing stranger lead the speaker to imagine a totally different life for herself. Because of his florid tattoos, leafy vines and blossoms, and his tattoos of uncertain meaning, saints and symbols, she projects onto the stranger all sorts of positive associations. His intimacy with his wife upon his return home, the ribs he'll eat, the dark beer he'll drink, and that's all it takes to send her off on a quest for an alternative life. Like Hoagland, she tries to console herself with how her life has unfolded. She says, I can't stop wishing I'd had that life, 
Oh, I know, it's a miracle to have a life, any life at all. Random events, her poor driving, bacteria invading her bloodstream, a falling tree, could have doomed her but did not. It's always dangerous to declare that one line in a poem is most crucial. That tends to push the rest of the lines to the margins. But I think we might agree that one line in this poem jumps out at us when we consider today's theme of unlived lives. I want him to have been my child's father. What an extraordinary line. She devalues the real father of her daughter, and it's all based on the appearance of a stranger who runs by her on West Cliff Drive. I'm glad the father of her daughter is dead. Imagine if he were alive and heard her dismissive statements about him. Though it's still disturbing that the daughter would learn of the disregard the poem expresses about her father. More to the point, the speaker implies her daughter would operate with an identity the speaker would prefer and can only wish for, had her father been somebody else. I'm going to reread the poem. I would like you to be especially alert to the poem's closure when her adult daughter makes an appearance. The speaker shares her daughter's response to her request to end the speaker's life when the speaker's mind has stopped functioning in a way that resembles her current identity. This, again, is Ellen Bass's poem, Indigo. As I'm walking on West Cliff Drive, a man runs toward me pushing one of those jogging strollers with shock absorbers so the baby can keep sleeping, which this baby is. I can just get a glimpse of its almost translucent eyelids. The father is young, a jungle of indigo and carnelian tattooed from knuckle to jaw, leafy vines and blossoms, saints and symbols. Thick wooden plugs pierce his lobes, and his sunglasses testify to the radiance haloed around him. I'm so jealous as I often am. It's a kind of obsession. I want him to have been my child's father. I want to have married a man who wanted to be in a body, who wanted to live in it so much that he marked it up like a book, underlining, highlighting, writing in the margins. I was here. Not like my dead ex-husband, who was always fighting against the flesh, who sat for hours on his Zafu chanting Om, and then went out and broke his hand punching the car. I imagine when this galloping man gets home, he's going to want to have sex with his wife, who slept in late, and then he'll eat barbecued ribs and let the baby teeth on a bone while he drinks a dark beer. I can't stop wishing my daughter had had a father like that. I can't stop wishing I'd had that life. Oh, I know, it's a miracle to have a life, any life at all. 
It took eight years for my parents to conceive me. First there was the war, and then just waiting. And my mother's bones so narrow, she had to be slit and I airlifted. That anyone is born, each precarious success from sperm and egg to zygote, embryo, infant, is a wonder. And here I am, alive, almost seventy years, and nothing has killed me. Not the car I totaled, running a stop sign, or the sparacat that screwed into my blood. Not the tree that fell in the forest exactly where I was standing, my best friend shoving me backward so I fell on my ass as it crashed. I'm alive, and I gave birth to a child. So she didn't get a father who'd sling her onto his shoulder. And so much else she didn't get. I've cried most of my life over that. And now there's everything that we can't talk about. We love, but cannot take too much of each other. Yet she is the one who, when I asked her to kill me if I no longer have my mind, we were on our way into Ross, shopping for dresses, that's something she likes, and they all look adorable on her. She's the only one who didn't hesitate or refuse or waver or flinch. As we strode across the parking lot, she said, Okay, but when's the cutoff? That's what I need to know. Again, that's Ellen Bass's poem, Indigo. Those last four sentences are remarkable. Not over a glass of wine at midnight, not while walking together through the forest, but while on a shopping trip to Ross, of all places, she asks her daughter to kill her if I no longer have my mind. Apparently, her daughter is one of several who have been asked this, because she's the only one who didn't hesitate or refuse or waver or flinch. There are no internal quotation marks in the poem to signal who is talking, but the language indicates the daughter said, Okay, but when's the cutoff? Then we get the last line. That's what I need to know. Does the daughter say that out loud? Or is that the speaker's uncertainty creeping in as the poem closes? I don't know. Our final poem for today's show, Carl Dennis's The God Who Loves You, despite its title, is a secular poem. The God, with the lowercase g, is not a divine mover, not even a divine director. The poem addresses a large-souled man who might be inclined to imagine an omniscient God pacing in his cloudy bedroom. All-knowing, this God recognizes how the personal choices we make steer us away from being as happy or fulfilled as we might otherwise be. This God, though, does not act on what he knows, does not come to our aid to redirect our lives. But the poem asks, do we really want to imagine such a being, a passive, all-knowing figure, 
or should we just get on with our lives? This is Carl Dennis's The God Who Loves You. It must be troubling for the God who loves you to ponder how much happier you'd be today had you been able to glimpse your many futures. It must be painful for him to watch you on Friday evenings driving home from the office content with your week, three fine houses sold to deserving families, knowing as he does exactly what would have happened had you gone to your second choice for college, knowing the roommate you'd have been allotted, whose ardent opinions on painting and music would have kindled in you a lifelong passion, a life thirty points above the life you're living on any scale of satisfaction, and every point a thorn in the side of the God who loves you. You don't want that, a large-souled man like you, who tries to withhold from your wife the day's disappointments, so she can save her empathy for the children. And would you want this God to compare your wife with the woman you were destined to meet on the other campus? It hurts you to think of him ranking the conversation you'd have enjoyed over there higher in insight than the conversation you're used to. And think how this loving God would feel knowing that the man next in life for your wife would have pleased her more than you ever will, even on your best days, when you really try. Can you sleep at night, believing a God like that is pacing his cloudy bedroom, harassed by alternatives you're spared by ignorance? The difference between what is and what could have been will remain alive for him even after you cease existing, after you catch a chill running out in the snow for the morning paper, losing 11 years that the God who loves you will feel compelled to imagine scene by scene, unless you come to the rescue by imagining him no wiser than you are, no God at all, only a friend no closer than the actual friend you made at college, the one you haven't written in months. Sit down tonight and write him about the life you can talk about with a claim to authority, the life you've witnessed, which, for all you know, is the life you've chosen. That's Carl Dennis's The God Who Loves You. The poem constructs a kind of point system for evaluating our lives. Had the person this poem focuses on lived with a different roommate when younger, a person passionate about painting and music, that could have inspired the person to enjoy a life 30 points above the life you're living on any scale of satisfaction. Had he gone to a second choice of college and met and married a different woman, 
the conversations he could have shared with her would be higher in insight than the conversation you're used to. But the poem does not want this person to feel cheated by the choices he made, however random they might have been. This remote God knows that had his wife married someone else, that alternative husband would have pleased her more than you ever will, even on your best days, when you really try. Well, that puts him in his place. The poem closes with some recommendations. Let go of the idea that a divine being is harassed with the knowledge that your life might have been better. If, for example, your choices shorten your life by 11 years, the God who loves you will feel compelled to imagine scene by scene those lost years. Unless you come to the rescue by imagining him no wiser than you are, no God at all, only a friend no closer than the actual friend you made at college, the one you haven't written in months. Sit down tonight and write him about the life you can talk about with a claim to authority, the life you've witnessed, which for all you know is the life you've chosen. And with those suggestions in mind, I will close this episode of Poems for Company. You may listen to any episode of the show whenever you like. Just go to kmun.org, click on the podcast tab, and then click on Poems for Company. There you will also find a credit list of all poems read on the show. Our theme music is Philip Auberg's Going to the Sun from his CD Live from Montana, available at sweetgrassmusic.com. Thank you for listening today to Poems for Company. <laughs>